One, two, Freddy's coming for you. Three, four, better lock your door. Five, six, grab your crucifix. Seven, eight, gonna stay up late. Nine, ten, never sleep again. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome into another episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. This episode, we're getting a little bit nostalgic. We're looking at uh, things about the nerd community that we really, really miss, that aren't really uh, in existence. Uh, but first, it is not a complete episode without nerd news. Dave, you've got some Amazon Prime news for us. What's uh, going on in your world? Well, I'm going to tell you right now that uh, I'm about to show my age a little bit here. There's a sequel to the movie Coming to America getting ready to come out. And it's going to arrive on streaming service Amazon Prime. My mind is blown and my funny bone is hyped. So Coming to America is a 1988 comedy directed by John Landis and based on a story by Eddie Murphy who also starred in the lead role. The film co-stars Arsenio Hall, James Earl Jones, John Amos. And in the movie, Murphy plays... Akeem, the crown prince of the fictional African nation of Samunda, who travels to the United States to find a woman he can marry. The, this movie is, in my humble opinion, the funniest thing Eddie Murphy has ever done, and that man is funny. I encountered this movie as a kid, and I don't think I've ever laughed so hard in my life. I rewatch this one quite often because I love it so much. Uh, Murphy is really at the height of his powers here, as is Arsenio Hall. They're both incredibly funny in this movie. So imagine my surprise when I learned that there is a sequel, it has already been filmed, it brings back all of the main actors of the original movie, and it was recently sold to Amazon Prime for a whopping $125 million. So according to Brett Lang and Matt Donnelly of Variety, uh, and I quote here, In light of ongoing movie theater closures and countless blockbusters changing release dates, Paramount had been exploring numerous options in recent weeks for the tentative Christmas Day release of Coming to America 2, including selling the rights in-house at owner Viacom streamer CBS All Access. Other streaming services also looked at the film. Now, Amazon Prime is reportedly looking at premiering this movie on December 18th. In the new movie, Murphy's Akeem learns he has a son in America he never knew about, and he sets out to bring him home and make him the new crown prince. I never knew I wanted this movie, but now I'm hyped, and I really just can't wait. Chris, what are your thoughts? I can't wait. Um, I know this is gonna this is like gonna be the shock value for the week, but I have not seen Coming to America. Um, Holy crap, dude! It, it is it's one of those movies where we could probably make an entire episode of Oh my God, Chris, how many how have you not seen these movies? It's one of those. It's at the top of the list. I will say, like, I'm a huge fan of Eddie Murphy's work. Like, um, his stand up, Delirious, is amazing. Um, so I've seen almost like everything else that he's done. Beverly Hills Cop. I watch all those movies, even the third one, as bad as it is. I watch those all the time. Um, uh. So I'm super, super excited for this, and I just need to watch it. Um, and, and I'm excited that he's revisiting this. And I'm really interested because um, a lot has been made about the the career of Eddie Murphy, especially in the last couple of years, um, kind of the, the ebbs and the flows of it. But I recently watched um, Dolomite Is My Name, and, and that is probably one of the strongest performances that I've seen him do. Um, it's a hilarious. It's it's wonderfully and smartly done. Um, Wesley Snipes is probably he was robbed of an Oscar for that supporting role that he was. Wesley Snipes was absolutely money, and I see that he's going to be in this film as well. Um, so I'm super stoked for that. I, I I think the world of Wesley Snipes. I also thought I, I read the same Variety article that you did, and Amazon Studios is not playing around. It's really interesting to see how a lot of these companies are kind of pivoting and shifting in the wake of COVID-19 and, and what movies and entertainment and TV shows are going to look like going forward. Um, you know, you had the Disney CEO 
you know, coming out and basically saying that they're going to focus on making at-home content uh, and and focus on Disney Plus rather than theatrical releases. And that's huge for a company like Disney to come out with that. And then you see, um, you know, Amazon Studios is releasing, oh, oh man, a movie that I didn't know that I needed, the sequel to Borat. Um, And then they also acquired uh, another Paramount uh, acquisition, uh, a Tom Clancy adaptation without remorse starring one of my favorites, Michael B. Jordan. Um, they also have Regina King's one night in Miami and everything that woman does touches, you know, she's queen Midas. She is, everything is about her is gold. Um, and that's expected to be an Oscar contender. So super looking forward to everything that's coming out. Um, really, really excited for this. Um, and it's just really interesting again, to see how all of these big production studios are kind of shifting, um, you're also getting a lot of new additions to this sequel, Tracy Morgan, uh, Leslie Jones, uh, and, and as I said, Wesley Snipes. So I'm super excited to see where they go with this. And I want to say, and you don't quote me on this, but I want to say in one of the articles I read about this sequel that the director of Dolomite Is My Name also directed the sequel, um, which is uh, pretty cool, I think, and, and a good uh, sign that this could be a, a quality movie. Now, Chris... Uh, you have uh, something from the world of comic books for nerd news for us this week. What have you got? Yeah, so uh, writers Donny Cates and Scott Snyder are endorsing a Marvel versus DC crossover. So this all started um, a couple of days ago on Twitter. Uh, Twitter user at Colin Pendragon said, quote, Okay, hear me out. I think it's time for a new Marvel versus DC comics, and it should be written by Scott Snyder and Donny Cates. New crossovers would also be welcome. Thank you for listening. And Donnie Cates retweeted it and said, I don't think anyone wants that happen to happen more than us. I know I'm down. And Snyder uh, replied, seconded. And, um, you know, this is just a really interesting and fascinating thing. And I think it's, you know, high time that we have another event like this. Now, just to give our listeners a bit of history... Uh, in 1996, DV- DC vs. Marvel Comics um, was written by Peter David and Ron Mars, and they had it featured art by Dan Jurgens, Claudio Castellini. Um, that was one of the first crossovers featuring matchups like Spider-Man vs. Hulk, Spider-Man vs. Superboy, and I think some of these were referenced by some of our previous guests. I, I remember these are starting to ring a bell. Batman vs. Captain America, Wolverine Lobo. Storm Wonder Woman. And then they followed it up with the Marvel DC combo series, the Amalgam Universe, uh, which included mashups like Princess Aurora of Themyscira, Wonder Woman and Storm, Dark Claw, Batman and Wolverine, Spider Boy, Superboy and Spider Man, Mr. X, Martian Manhunter and Professor X, and Ra's Apocalypse, Ra's al Ghul, and Apocalypse. And then in 2003 and 2004, Kurt Busick's JLA Avengers crossover took place. Um, and that was the first time that Marvel and DC allowed their characters to interact. Um, it fo- uh, featured like huge moments fans were really looking forward to, like Superman wielding Mjolnir and Captain America's shield. Um, both DC and Marvel versions of Captain Marvel, uh, Captain Marvel appearing in the same panels, and Batman admitting Captain America would probably beat him in a fight. And like I said, I think this is the perfect time for something like this. In the wake of a global pandemic that has hurt and affected so many, including publishers, creators, and fans alike, this would be something hopeful to look forward to. And I think it would go a long way to bridge the toxic gap that unfortunately exists in both of the fandoms. Yeah, you know, so so this is interesting to me. Obviously, this is just some creators and fans talking uh, on social media about an event that would really have to be worked out um, on a corporate level. And I'm not saying never say never, uh, but given the relationship between DC and Marvel in recent years and the fact that both now have corporate overlords, it seems pretty unlikely that they're going to go back to this well. Now, I will say uh, that I do take some issue with the versus in this suggestion, because as you've mentioned, we've been there before back in the 90s. And the ego of the two companies, combined with fan voting, led to some really odd story moments. Like, for example, Storm defeating Wonder Woman, which power set-wise seems unrealistic. Uh, I would say we don't need a versus here. Why do the heroes always have to start beating the snot out of each other before teaming up? Even JLA Avengers had a fair amount of that. There was a lot of antagonism between the heroes of the two companies first. 
I'd much be much more interested in an in uh, an incursion type story where DC heroes take on Marvel villains and vice versa because they are swapping universes. And then towards the end of a series of one shots, the heroes have to come together uh, to take on some kind of big cosmic threat. Um, after Batman versus Superman, I don't think I've ever liked the hero versus hero storyline less. Um, now I can imagine something like you know. Uh, Batman versus Venom, for example, being extremely fascinating, or Spider-Man versus the Joker. Th- those are things that I'm much more interested in than hero versus hero. Other than that, yes, I'd love to see the two companies do some crossing over again. It used to be much more frequent. It led to some really cool moments. You know, think of the fun interactions that Thor and Wonder Woman could have, for example, or Superman and Captain America, or Batman and Black Panther. I'm in. But please, let's stop always having our heroes fight each other. It's a tired trope at this point. Let the good guys be the good guys for a change. You don't have to, you know, convince me any further on that point. I, t- I totally agree, and and that was one of the points that I made during our third episode with with the whole anti-hero like dark side. Like I, I'm not a fan of it. Um, and even in like the the Silver Age comics that you know I grew up, you know, reading. Um, it was it was kind of annoying and and tropey even then seeing like Spider-Man and Iceman you know it, it was it was you know you you could you could set your watch by it oh they misunderstanding and then they fight and then it's like they have this realization and and it's just even within the same company within the same properties and 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 the same universe of characters it's annoying so i totally agree with that but like a crossover i think would be so much fun if you if you do it you know something along the lines of what you said absolutely yeah all right that wraps up our nerd news segment when we come back we'll hit up our byword big talk with uh some things that we really really miss uh, in the nerd world. Stick around. All right, we're back with our Byword Big Talk of the Week. We're feeling nostalgic. We've been cooped up in quarantine for so long, and we're really starting to pine after things that really aren't around anymore. So we each picked three things uh, that are nerdy, that we grew up with, uh, that we really, really miss. So, Dave, what is first on your list? I really, truly, deeply miss video game manuals. The best of these were just super special. Many old-school manuals were so much more than, you know, this button causes this action in the game. They were important supplementary material to the video game. I remember my parents buying a new game for me, and I just couldn't wait to play it. So I'd open the box in the back seat of the car and start poring over the manual. There was a summary of the basic story, maybe a glossary of terms. Basic controls, sure, but then there's a breakdown of characters, an index of enemies. It was this delicious appetizer before the main course. What else I loved about these was the art. Since many games back in the day had pretty rudimentary graphics, many manuals really brought the game's intentions to life with rocking artwork. I love video game manuals for very similar reasons, while of comic books. The art rocks. Now I understand why they faded away. Games started doing a better job teaching you how to play via tutorials in the game, and the internet provides all the information about a game you could ever need. You know, still I miss when a game like, for example, a a retro-style game like Shovel Knight includes an old-school-style manual in the box, it just makes my heart flutter. Since physical releases seem to be dying out slowly in favor of digital distribution, why not bring these back? Why not make the physical copy of a game a true event, a mini-collector's edition, with a nice box, with high-quality manual, print it in full color with original artwork. Uh, I think I'd be willing to pay a little bit more for a physical game if it came with all the old extras. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I remember poring over these as a kid. I was like OCD about it. And it really gave me something to do while I was waiting to play the game again. You know, I wasn't... You know, one of those kids that would sit in front of uh, the television and play for hours on end. I had siblings and I had to, you know, take turns and share. So it, it gave me some, like you said, some supplementary material to really dive in. And then I felt like I could 
fully come in prepared to excel. Um, now I'm hopping back and forth online between wiki articles, YouTube walkthroughs, just to find exactly what I need. If there's a particular part of one level, I'm having to, like, throw up a Hail Mary in a Google search and just say a prayer and hope that it works. So I, I really feel like we're missing out a lot um, without these manuals. Yeah, absolutely. I can agree with that. Yeah, they're just, they're, they were so special. I, I remember so much of the art in, like, those early... Uh, Super Mario Brothers manuals uh, really kind of taking that pixel art and just bringing it to the next level and really putting a face to Mario. It was it was very very special. Uh, and I also remember like I also remember like um, like those character backstories, like the biographies of like you know games like Mortal Kombat or Street Fighter, and it would give you like this whole bio and this whole write up on this person. And, you know, as story-driven gamers like you and I are, like, that's something that's really, really lost in games nowadays. Um, I even watched, like, a YouTube walkthrough today to help me get past a level. And it was like, well, this is, um, you know, a continuation of this part of the story, but who cares about that? And I was like, I do! I care about the story! <laughs> and it was just like, let's just get to the collecting of the collectibles and the button mashing. And I was like, no, tell me the story. Yeah, yeah, I'm totally with you there. Now, Chris, uh, you want to talk a little bit about how the nerd community has changed over the years. What have you got? Yeah, so I called this the nerd niche. Like, it was not so mainstream uh, to be a nerd back in the day. Like, it, And it also wasn't so commercialized. I remember, like, um, finding a kid in, like, the apartment complex that I, you know, grew up in. And I felt, I found out that he also liked Ninja Turtles and just the camaraderie immediately. And that gave us like something to bond over that. And I remember going to school and like being the weird kid, the Peter Parker that stuck out and that was different and weird. And then I found other nerds like me and it was like finding a needle in a haystack. And now with like, you know, I don't want to be a gatekeeper per se or anything or like, you know, this is the way it must be. I'm 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 not saying that. I I guess I'm just discouraged by how everything has brought been brought mainstream and, you know, people go watch, you know, an MCU film and they consider themselves an expert on comic books. Uh, you know, and and it's almost like a, a misdirection. It's like fool's gold. Is like um, you know, they'll, they'll comment like on, oh, you're wearing a an Avengers T-shirt. I watched that movie. Oh, really? Would you like to talk deeply about the characters? And I'm just, you know, I'm OCD like that. And I was like, you know, do you read any comics? And no, not really. So it's just kind of frustrating about how. You know, everything has been over-commercialized, and we say that a lot with, like, holidays and stuff like that, where everything is about the dollar and the bottom line. And I also think that it's had a negative effect on the content that's been put out a lot of the times. And I think, like, big studios, we've talked about this a lot, you know, particularly with the DC films, is, you know, they're just trying to churn out content, and they're not necessarily concerned with the quality of it. Um, and then we, you know, and I think that's, you know, they're trying to, and this started in the nineties, even when we were kids is they were trying to sell action figures rather than make, you know, good movies. Like, you know, the Power Ranger movies were nothing to write home about, but you know, they were trying to push action figures and toy sales and, um, you know, how can we make money off of this and pillows and comforter sets and, and everything. So it's just unfortunate to the way, you know, when things go mainstream, you really lose the authenticity. Um, and so I've really looked a lot more at, you know, smaller publishers, even like IDW, I consider, you know, not one of the big two. So I've re been reading a lot of IDW books, Boom Studios, Dynamite Books, you know, even looking for something different and original. Um, you know, we're seeing like a lot of reboots and a lot of not so original content. Um, so I, I'm definitely missing the, the nicheness of the nerd community, if you will. Yeah. Back in the Stone Age, when superhero movies had not entered the mainstream, when being called a nerd on the playground was still an insult, and when my classmates looked at me funny for reading comic books in class. Yeah, I remember these days well. You know, I love that more people have developed a pr an appreciation for this nerd niche. Superheroes dominating the movie screen, video games have surpassed the earning power of blockbuster movies. The nerd multiverse has really become bigger than it's ever been. The problem to me, I think, is that the larger a particular group of people gets, the more jerks that group will contain per capita. And it saddens me to no end to see how toxic 
mainstream nerddom is compared to when nerds were more of a niche. Like, Star Wars is a great example for this. I remember how thrilled, how grateful we were back in the 90s when a new book or comic book released. Um, There were no new Star Wars movies, so any scrap of new content was like ambrosia to us. And now we have a plethora of content. It's a golden age of Star Wars content. Now, some of it is good. Some of it is not so good. But instead of enjoying the good, many fans focus on the less than stellar. Thanks, I hate it has basically become the official slogan of Star Wars fans. Star Trek seems to be going down a similar path, with Discovery and Picard being uh, fairly polarizing shows. Why? If it's good, enjoy it. You know, if it's not, ignore it. But yeah, I think the the move from the niche to the mainstream has has brought about a a negativity that when I was a um, a kid, a teenager, and and was really getting into the whole nerd culture, I just didn't see that. Yeah, and I, I totally agree, and I'll definitely get more into this in my third point, because this one is, is so almost all-encompassing that, that I kind of split it into two and made part of it my third point. But I, I you know, like like I said, when I found that kid that liked Ninja Turtles like I did, I remember, like, you know, debating and arguing who our favorite turtle was. Like, I was Team Raph and Michelangelo, and, you know, he was you know, uh, a Leonardo guy, like we would, you know, play games or whatever, like go back and forth like kids are wont to do, but it wasn't like, like the, the nonsense that we see nowadays. It, it's just really, really unfortunate that um, people, I, I, I remember, okay, perfect example. I remember when the TV show Gotham came out and it was sold as this, you know, prequel to Batman. And I, I was, I was honestly in a really, really dark place, like personally, and I felt like watching that show just made me feel um, even, even, even in a worse, you know, state of mind. So I just like put that show away and I stopped watching it because it didn't do, it didn't do good things for me mentally and for my mental health. I did not go on Twitter. I did not go on Facebook and rant about how awful this show was and how anyone who likes this show is this, that, or the other. If you like something, like it. You know, wear t-shirts about it or post about your favorite characters. And if you don't like something, just grab the remote and watch something else. I, I truly do not understand the the necessity for some folks to to really just derail other people's fandoms like I, I i don't understand it it doesn't add up logically to me i think we're just a different generations of a uh, generation of nerds chris for us it was always about camaraderie and getting together that's what the nerd community did for us and it seems like today the nerd community is more about what separates us and that's regrettable it, it really is and you know growing up you know we've talked about our nerd origin stories you know at nauseum on this show but like really seeing you know, even the animated series of, of Spider-Man and the X-Men for me, like, I saw a geek, a nerd like Peter Parker, like, he was interested in science and making good grades and, you know, didn't really fit in with his friends uh, and the people that he went to school with. And I was like, he's like me. And, you know, just seeing the X-Men and I think the most essential part about the X-Men is that they're so different. They're so varied. For Pete's sake, my favorite character is a blue guy from Germany. Like, it doesn't get much different and varied than that. They come from all across the globe. But it's it's that it's that revisited theme in literature and, and popular media is the family that you choose. And and that's the most important thing. And, and that's why I keep coming back to the X-Men is it's a family. And it's a, a sense of belonging. And it's really, really unfortunate that we don't have that. Um, and a lot of corners and aspects of the nerd community. Yep, yep, I totally agree. Now, Dave, what is next on your nostalgic list of things that you miss? Now, I'm going to totally admit that uh, this is going to seem silly on the surface, but please hear me out. I miss appointment TV. You remember when a show aired at a certain time, and it was so good or so popular? You simply had to watch it or be left out of the conversation the following day. Pepperidge Farms remembers. 
Now, seriously though, there, there was something deeply special about your whole world having to slow down for a specific appointment with entertainment. Consuming media was really a communal experience with the family gathering together at a certain time to consume the media. And now with the rise of streaming, that's become increasingly left behind. And yes, I get it. Streaming is amazing. It's more convenient. It allows greater flexibility. Totally understand that. But I think it has cost us a sense of community. I remember watching Squeeze, for example, the third episode of The X-Files when it aired. It was creepy, and it helped cement this show as something deeply special right as it was beginning. And the next day at school, we were all talking about it. We couldn't wait for the next episode, but, but we had to. It built anticipation. It allowed us time to ruminate on what it all meant, even to develop fan theories, to truly engage with the media. And the most important appointment TV for me as a child was Saturday morning cartoons. This block of cartoons on Saturday mornings was densely packed with with hours of some of the best cartoons ever made. Tiny Toons, Animaniacs, Batman the Animated Series, X-Men, Spider-Man. There were so many excellent cartoons, gargoyles. And there was something so special after a long week at school sitting down in my pajamas with my cousins, eating breakfast cereal mixed together out of four different boxes, <laughs> and just taking in the newest episodes of our favorite cartoons. It was appointment TV. I'm actually glad in a lot of ways that some streaming services like uh, Disney Plus and CBS All Access have started dropping one episode at a time rather than whole seasons. I don't think binging is a good way to consume media. It feels a lot like fast food. It goes down the gullet quickly, but leaves you with an empty feeling. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think we touched on this um, in our discussion with Brian Q. Miller. We were talking about The Mandalorian and how, you know, you had to wait a week. And, and you know, a, a sense of that, and, and you touched on this as well, is like you really got to speculate and you got to stew over that for an entire week. And, you know, even, you know, shows... Um, like the flash and an arrow that would take like mid season breaks, you would, you would have like, and that was, you know, just, what was that? Like four years ago, like, uh, th and they would take like mid season breaks and you'd have a couple weeks or a couple months. And you're like, Oh God, what are they going to do with this? What are you going to do with that? It, it created a lot of great clickbait content online for, you know, sites like comicbook.com and CBR. Um, you know, just like speculation of, of what they were going to do going forward. And, I think a lot of that is lost. Um, and then, you know, when you binge something like in an entire weekend, you have that crushing sense of loss, I feel like, and the separation anxiety when you finish a show. Like, and, and then for me, like, I, I spend like a good 30 minutes to an hour scrolling trying to find something else on Netflix, starting something, realizing two minutes in, it's not as good as the show that you just finished. And it's this just whole process. And it's almost like I mourn this show that I miss because I just consumed all of it in one sitting. It's like, you know, like you said, fast food. It's like you just shove all this stuff down your gullet and then you have like this indigestion and this heartburn and, and you know, gas buildup because you can't move on to the next thing. Like, so it's really, really unfortunate. So, um, yeah, HBO max is doing a lot of the same things. I know raised by wolves, um, and Lovecraft country, uh, have, have, you know, parsed out episodes. Sometimes they do like three at a time or, you know, they start with like three, I think, and then one right after the other. So, and I, I think that's my preferred method to kind of build some speculation. And, and I give my wife a hard time, but she does the same thing. Like, she will not watch the series finale of shows because she doesn't like it ending. She hasn't watched like the the final episode of The Office or the final episode of Psych or the final episode of Monk because she doesn't want things to come to an end. So um, yeah, I, I I really miss and like you said, the communal experience. Um, I, I'm gonna have to turn in my nerd card here for a minute, but I remember watching Desperate Housewives with my mom on Sunday nights. Um, and it was just like this mother and son bonding thing. Um, and it's just like a totally atypical show that I would hardly ever watch on my own. But she sat me down and was like, watch this with me. 
I will say, Chris, you do not have to turn in your nerd card because Terry Hatcher was on this show and she famously played Lois Lane on a Superman television show in the 90s. So nerd card intact. Okay, good, good, good. But yeah, so I'm, you know, and those were some of my fondest memories with my mom, like, you know, watching that show, speculating about what was going to happen next. And a lot of that is lost because also, here's the thing too, when you're streaming, people watch at different rates. Like, you know, I was like, oh yeah, I started this show. And then you started talking to someone else about it. And they're like, well, I watched it in two days. And they're like trying to avoid spoiling the entire thing for you. So it's just just really, you know, strange, you know, place that we're in with binging. You know, I, I've, I've kind of ruminated on this a little bit. And those spaces in between episodes, those moments of, of waiting, those... um spaces to speculate basically uh i think that has a fueled my imagination over the years and and kind of got me into a space where i wanted to tell stories as well because if you're working through all the different ways a story can go in your mind um before you get to see what the ultimate end result is um i think you get a, a keen sense of of story and and how it works and i'm wondering sometimes if if binging isn't depriving a whole generation of of the opportunity to develop their imagination via story speculation, essentially. I, I, I think so. And, and I think technology, by and large, has, while convenient, it's a double-edged sword. Um, it's, it's made us impatient. I know for myself, like if a web page takes more than 30 seconds to load, I'm like, okay, something is wrong here. I need to get on the phone with the, you know, the internet provider. And, and, you know, it's, it's really made us so fast paced and so impatient. And, and I will say this, I'm, I'm glad that we still have the medium of comic books that will make us wait um, you know, for a storyline, if you're reading current comics, I know for myself, I just read Amazing Spider-Man number 50, um, and the mysterious villain that was teased two, two and a half years ago, uh, Kindred, was the, the identity was finally revealed, you know, 50 issues later, and, and you know, Spider-Man fans have, you know, been going stir-crazy over the last two years waiting who is Kindred. And and it just keeps me coming back, you know, whether I, you know, love all of Nick Spencer's run on, on Amazing Spider-Man is neither here nor there. It keeps me coming back reading issue after issue after issue for 50 issues for two to two and a half years because it's that suspense. And I feel like a lot of that is lost in television and film. Yeah, I can totally agree with that. Now, Chris, I think your uh, your next point here that you're getting ready to talk about is going to hit pretty close to home with me. What have you got? Dave, I really miss, like, getting birthday money or getting allowance money. Okay, birthday money. I wasn't given an allowance. My dad told me I was allowed to live at the house rent-free when I was a kid. But I remember <laughs> getting, like, I remember getting birthday money and going to get a new um, PlayStation or Xbox game and just that anticipation of the 10 to 15 minute drive home, tearing through that instructional booklet, just I can't wait to go and play this game and putting it in the system and playing it immediately. But then I was crushed two years ago when I bought an Xbox One and I got a new game and I put it in and I could not play it for 12 to 24 hours. Because it had to install to the hard drive. And I went to work the next day and I asked my students, like, guys, I just got an Xbox One. What, what's wrong with this Xbox? Like, I can't play this game. They're like, oh, man, you, you got to wait. I'm like, what? What is this nonsense? <laughs> so I really miss playing new video games right away. My wife and I, we budget a lot of things. So when she's like, why don't you go pick out a new game? At first glance, that's really exciting. Like, my wife loves me. She said I could pick out a new video game. But when I stop and think about it, like, I'm really going to enjoy that game tomorrow after I leave my Xbox on overnight so it can install. So it's just really anticlimactic for me, and it's really, really frustrating how long it takes to install something, and I have to wait to play it right away. Yeah, so prepare for ramble. This is this is something I feel very passionately about. <laughs> 
there's almost nothing more frustrating to me than not just installing a game, but the dreaded day one patch. Look, I, I really love the rise of the internet, and I love that it allows patching and DLC for games. Back in the old days, when you uh, bought a game and it was broken, it was broken forever. That's just how it was. There was a coding error, and there was nothing you could do about it. So this this new age is great. But I do feel that many developers have come to rely on digital patching as a crutch. They use it as an excuse to ship unfinished, broken games with the implicit promise that it'll work eventually. And that sucks. Not only do I pop in a physical game and I can't play it immediately because it has to install, then it requires a patch that needs to download, and sometimes that patch doesn't even fix all of the problems with the game. There'll be another one later down the line. And it doesn't help that sometimes the patches are even larger than the install size of the game and take forever to download, even on my beefy internet connection. Like, what? what is that? How do you have a game that's 12 gigabytes that needs a 40 gigabyte patch? That I think you gave me the patch on the disc and the game is downloading. Like, something's weird here. This problem is only going to get worse as games move into the 4K space in the next generation of gaming consoles. And you're looking at much higher resolution graphics. Uh, You're looking at probably games that are going to be 60, 70, 80, 100 gigabytes big. And and then you're going to have to patch that sucker with a 200 gigabyte patch or something? Look, the good news is that it doesn't have to be that extreme. Nintendo, for example, has time and time again proven a willingness to delay games to polish them and to ship them in the best possible state so patches remain small. Now, even Nintendo games need patches. But I find playing games on my Switch is a lot faster and easier than on many other consoles. I pop in that little game cartridge, and yes, there's an installation, but it takes maybe two minutes instead of, you know... 12 hours. And if there is a patch that needs to install, it's usually a matter of minutes as well, not a matter of hours. And I think one of the things that the industry has to figure out is is how to cut down on this problem. What is the point of going and purchasing a game, for example, on the, you know, the 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 great Black Friday holiday when it's going to be, you know, two days before you even get to actually play the game. It's, it's a very, very odd system that we find ourselves in. So I totally agree with you. And boy, oh boy, do I wish that, that developers would just take their time and make a good game and ship it in a finished state. Well, it only gives me more reason to wait for a game to go on discount. Like, I have no reason to buy a brand new game uh, because, you know... If I if I can wait a couple of months or even years and and buy it, you know, at eighty percent off, hopefully they'll have those patches all the way done. Unless it's you know like a a game that that regularly has like seasonal upgrades or you know things things like that. But it, it's just highly frustrating and you know gives me all the more reason to take a more casual approach to my gaming because uh, I, I I get so frustrated by it. Um, Dave, what is your third and final thing on your nerdy nostalgia list? <laughs> magazines. Specifically nerdy magazines. Wizard was awesome back in the day for comic book news, behind-the-scenes peaks, art previews, deep-dive interviews. Nintendo Power was arguably the greatest video game magazine ever, but but there were plenty of other good ones. You know, it was PlayStation Magazine, Xbox Now, all those kinds of things. Even today, I could spend hours reading through old issues of Nintendo Power. You know, the little walkthroughs they published, uh, all the artwork they included, the the letters pages, the speculation about what might happen in, in upcoming video games. Now, obviously, the reason magazines, not just nerdy ones, but in general have slowly faded is because, of course, the almighty internet. Here's the problem in my book. Most of the websites that have supplanted these magazines are simply not as good. Now, I don't, I don't mean to come across as negative, but I don't think sites like Comic Book Resources uh, or ComicBook.com are anywhere near the quality of Wizard Magazine, even on their best days. And that is not uh, necessarily a, a fault of the people working at those places, but it is the nature of the business they're in. They're not making magazines, they're making websites. Individual articles don't go as in-depth in most cases, 
the coverage of a particular nerd niche is often shallow at best. And the reason for that is simple. It's all about those clicks. The internet requires bite-sized nuggets of information that can be quickly digested on a cell phone screen. And advertisers, they don't pay by the page in a magazine, they pay by click. So it is in the best interest of the website to have short articles, fast content, clickbaity titles, just to get people to click, 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 click through a whole bunch of different stuff. And, you know, the fact is, that's not just a problem in nerd media, but in news media, period. Long-form journalism, investigative journalism, the kind of stuff that really uh, gets to the meat and potatoes of a topic, that stuff's starting to fade away as online distribution becomes more important. I, on the other hand... I love those deep dives. I miss them. And I haven't really found a suitable replacement for that online. Much like manuals for video games, there, there's also something to be said for the vast amounts of supplementary material that ended up in these magazines. Uh, just to pick up on Nintendo Power, for example, again. Nintendo Power often contained short comic strips featuring Nintendo characters. I got to read comic short stories, basically, featuring Mario or Link or Kirby. Um, and those sorts of things were icing on the cake. It was in addition to the regular content. Um, Wizard Magazine famously proposed an ultimate take on DC Comics in the vein of Marvel's Ultimate Universe, complete with redesigned character artwork and pitches that were all written by staff at Wizard. This stuff was awesome, and it just doesn't happen on modern nerd websites. It's too deep, it's too complicated to generate quick click revenue. And I think there's content missing for the nerd community because of it. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember also, like, my money to spend on video games was was far and few between like i like i said before it came down to usually birthday money like once a year i i got to pick a game or or christmas or something like that so i really relied on like game reviews um and things like that to you know like you know this was a highly anticipated game but it kind of fell flat or you know this was you know um an underrated title that you should really, really check out. So, you know, I, I definitely miss going through like Game Informer and, and, and you know, magazines like that. And I, t I totally agree with the quote unquote advance, whatever you say, what you will about that, you know, moniker about uh, of the digital age. And, I, I, you know, especially like even, you know, you know, right before this show, before we hit record, I was doing research for, for, um, our nerd news segments. Um, and it's highly frustrating to have to go from one article to the next because we traded in meat and potatoes journalism and meat and potatoes articles for hors d'oeuvres. And I'm starved for information. I'm, I'm looking here nor there and like just piecing together all of these things um, rather than, you know, relying on, on one article to provide all the information that I need. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I just I'm I miss it, man. I'm I'm just even thinking of that Wizard magazine feature um on like DC Comics. This is what they should do for their ultimate universe. I had so much fun pouring over those proposals and that artwork. And you're not going to see um comic book resources or comicbook.com doing something like that. And and let's not even talk about the the, the injustice of Newsarama and how it got gobbled up by corporate machinations is now part of games radar and it's just like has almost become a non-entity. You know there were some websites that were trying to to do this kinds of these kinds of things in the beginning. But the revenue model that they have to follow makes it basically impossible to do that online. And at the same time, it's not feasible financially anymore to do it in print media because it's extremely expensive to print, uh, especially if you're doing a niche magazine that doesn't reach a whole bunch of people because, well, circulation for magazines is down across the board. Let's not even talk about newspapers. So it's just frustrating that there seems to be a type of content that is dying out because of the advance of technology. Yeah, and I even remember hearing about um, a couple of guys that work for IGN that, you know, left that company to go start their own YouTube channel because of the revenue stream. So yeah, it's, it's just really wild. And if you would have told me even 10 years ago that we would be where we are when it comes to, you know, digital entertainment, I would not have believed you. All right, Chris, you have one more. 
Let's get toxic. Not the Britney Spears song, please. Let's get toxic. <laughs> well, I'm slipping under. Um, and I hinted this in my first point, but I wanted to give it its own, you know, set amount of time. I really miss the toxic free nature of fandom. As I said before, um, finding a fellow nerd was like, you know, the holy grail growing up. Um, you know, finding someone who likes Spider-Man or who watched the X-Men like I did, um, who wanted to play with Batman action figures, um, who wanted to chuck Power Ranger action figures out of a tree with me. Like it was few and far between. Uh, I grew up around a bunch of jocks and, and nobody was interested in any of that. So, um, and I feel like part one of one of the end results it's a, like uh it's a double edged sword when you make everything more mainstream and we referenced this earlier the more people that you have in a fandom the more people that you let in the more different types of people that you're going to come in when it talks when when you're talking like personality when you're talking about just regular guys regular gals and then you have a bunch of buttholes as well coming into the group. Um, and then also with the, you know, the ingenuity of the internet is a double-edged sword as well. Sometimes you are able to connect with nerds around the world and it's really, really cool. We have, you know, even on our pages on Twitter and Instagram, we have fantastic interactions with other Trekkies, with other Star Wars fans, with other comic book readers and, and fans of, you know, film. But we also have this slew of people who hide behind a laptop screen or a cell phone screen with, you know, cartoon characters as their profile picture and a random, you know, username. And they feel completely unleashed to release all of this hateful, toxic language about something that they're supposed to be a fan of. And and it's just really, really unfortunate how we can't just enjoy the things that we love and just ignore and move away from the things that we do not enjoy. Like, I, I don't understand. As I said before, it does not add up to me. I love Star Trek Discovery. I love it. Um, per- particularly the characters of Michael Burnham and Saru are very inspirational to me. I have cheered for Emperor Giorgio, a, a villainous character, in ways that I never thought I would root for a villainous character. Um, Star Trek Lower Decks has been really a fun show to experience over the last couple of weeks. And yet, if I log on to Twitter, I see a bunch of just awful and hateful things by close-minded individuals who are able to let loose on social media. And it's just really unfortunate. I I miss the days where you like Batman. I like Batman. Let's be friends. We can debate who's a better villain, Joker or Bane, or who do we enjoy more Superman or Batman? Not this. Let's pit them together, uh, put them against one another. And, and we have this whole conflict nonstop conflict. It's, it's just really unfortunate. It's, it's frustrating the whole toxic fandom. Yeah, this one's difficult. Uh, nobody's happy with anything anymore. Uh, the cool thing seems to be to say you're a fan of something and then proceed to tear it down. Harassing creators and actors online is especially egregious, if you ask me. You know, here's a recent example. I've been following this one on Twitter just over the last few days. Artist Doc Shainer was attacked pretty viciously on Twitter for expressing an opinion about Superman. So here's what he tweeted. No more showing Superman with glowing red eyes just because he's angry. He's either using heat vision or he's not. Now, fans of Zack Snyder's interpretation of Superman in particular uh, turned super toxic on him. And that's just ridiculous. First of all, Shainer is an artist who draws a pitch-perfect Superman. A Superman that captures the humanity and optimism of the character. I adore his interpretation of the character. Um... And he's earned the right, by being an artist, a creator who's worked on Superman, to have an opinion on the visual interpretation of that character. Now, if some fans of Superman don't like his take, that's perfectly fine. There are plenty of other interpretations. But let's not harass a creator for his interpretation in particular. This kind of stuff makes me almost embarrassed to be a nerd. 
I feel like I constantly have to explain to people, look, we're not all like this. And and it's interesting too. And and one thing that I appreciate about the premise of our show was being a DC and a Marvel guy and how we can coexist and appreciate different materials and still be friends and still be kind towards one another. And even if we were to disagree, we do so in a respectful manner. Like, how is that not possible? Um, I, I, it just does not add up to me. Yeah, social media definitely has had a uh, a negative influence on the discourse. And I think part of it is definitely that people feel... Um, they feel safe, as you said, behind their computer screen uh, to let loose these tirades because they are, for all intents and purposes, anonymous. Um, I don't know if that, what the solution is to this kind of problem. Um, I, I guess we just need to decide as, as nerds that we're going to be good to each other. I absolutely agree. And, and, and especially, you know, as fans of DC Comics and of the X-Men respectively, we've had to deal with some, some piss poor film content and we can still be hopeful towards the future. I think we should all just come together and, and remain hopeful for the future. I'm with you 100% there. I'm still very, very hopeful <laughs> that we're going to get some good DC movies in the future. <laughs> I mean, it's we, we've started the turnaround. If they can finally give me a good Superman movie, I'll, I'll give them good money for that, I can tell you. <laughs> All right, guys, that wraps up our Byword Big Talk for this week. When we come back from this, our final break, we're going to go into actual real nightmare territory. Nerd Nightmare takes us to Elm Street when we come back. All right, ladies and gentle nerds, welcome back. It's time for another Nerd Nightmare where I torture uh, our friend Chris with horror movies that he has never seen before and might not be entirely comfortable watching. And if I am good at anything, it's making people feel uncomfortable in their choices. So today we are going to take a closer look at A Nightmare on Elm Street, a 1984 horror film written and directed by Wes Craven. It stars Heather Langenkamp, John Saxon, Ronnie Blakely, and of course Robert England as Freddy Krueger. And also Johnny Depp in his film debut. In this movie, four teenagers living in the fictional town of Springwood on Elm Street in Ohio are invaded and killed in their dreams by a burnt killer with a bladed leather glove named Freddy Krueger. The movie spawned a series of sequels, also a television show. Um, there was an album, I believe, as well. Uh, and this whole series made Freddy Krueger, in essence, a cultural phenomenon. Chris... I'm very much looking forward to uh, how you survive this one. What are your feelings about A Nightmare on Elm Street? Holy 80s film, Batman. Like, the synthesizer was strong in this one. Wow. Yeah. Um, I will say my first reaction is it's a definite step down with regards to the acting in this film. If you compare it to John Carpenter's Halloween um, Heather Langen, uh, Heather Langenkamp is fine, but she is no Jamie Lee Curtis. Um, I did appreciate that she had that, that character quality that I love where they take their matters into their own hands and she set up all those booby traps a la Home Alone-esque. So I did appreciate that. That was super cool. That was the one moment that I finally started to buy her as a character. Um, I thought it was a disappointing debut for Johnny Depp. That was pretty lame. Um, he, he didn't really do much except for cut off half of his shirt, as people in the 80s were wont to do. I'm looking at you, Dad. Um, Robert England, for me, was the only one that was bringing it. Like, he is like Michael Fassbender in the X-Men films of, of recent years. He's the only one who showed up and, and, and really wanted to be there and do the thing. Um it's truly a unique, fascinating, and genuinely terrifying premise. That first murder, Tina, when Tina was killed, that was mesmerizingly freaky. Like, I was terrified, but I could not look away. Watching her get dragged across the ceiling like a rag doll, as red is just spewing everywhere, was just fascinating. I also thought it was an interesting play on the um, entire idea of Sins of the Father, 
like these children are being punished for the sins of their parents. I thought that was a pretty interesting thing uh, of a common theme in literature and media um, and, and even, you know, with biblical origins. Um, what do you know? We've got some more incompetent parents uh, that don't know what the hell they're doing. Um Seven days without sleep was pretty hard to believe. She's got these, like, obviously fake caffeine pills that are, like, the size of horse steroids that she was taking. I didn't believe that very much. Um, my one of, one of the real, like, turn up my, you know, eyebrow moments was why would the parents' first instinct after Freddy Krueger gets off on a technicality why would their first instinct would be medieval european justice like we're just gonna torch him we got pitchforks and torches so that was really really odd to me um in the research for this movie this was fascinating for me the basis of the film was in fire uh was inspired by several newspaper articles printed in the Los Angeles Times in the 1970s about Hmong uh, refugees who, after fleeing to the United States because of war and genocide in Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam, suffered disturbing nightmares and refused to sleep. Some of the men died in their sleep soon after. Medical authorities called the phenomenon Asian Death Syndrome, not really original title, the condition (laughs) afflicted men between the ages of 19 and 57, and was believed to be sudden unexplained death syndrome or Brugada syndrome or both. So that was super crazy and creepy to find out. Um, on the character and the nature of Freddy Krueger himself, Craven, Wes Craven said, quote, In a sense, Freddy stands for the worst of parenthood and adulthood, the dirty old man, the nasty father, and the adult who wants children to die rather than help them prosper. He's the boogeyman and the worst fear of children, the adult that's out to get them. He's a very primal figure, sort of like Kronos devouring his children, that evil, twisted, perverted father figure uh, that wants to destroy and is able to get them at their most vulnerable moment which is when they're asleep. So that was super insightful and creepy. And then, by Wes Craven's account, his own adolescent experiences led him to the name Freddy Krueger. He had been bullied at school by a child named Fred Krueger. How awful do you have to feel as the real Fred Krueger? Like, holy... The worst character in all of horror films is named after and inspired by me. (laughs) Uh, Craven had done the same thing in his film, The Last House on the Left, where the villain's name was shortened to Krug. The colored sweater he chose for his villain was based on the DC Comics character, Plastic Man. I thought that was pretty interesting, nerd Diane. Uh, Craven chose to make Kruger's sweater red and green after reading an article in a 1982 Scientific American magazine that said that these two colors were the most clashing colors to the human retina. So, like, I, what I love about all three films that I've watched before, uh, for watched for this series, is how intensive the process is with these basically like creator own projects. And I, and I just love that it breathes, uh, like I said last week, it breathes this authenticity when, when something is your baby, when you, when you have a project that is 100% yours, like Romero had in night of the living dead, um, like Craven has here with uh, nightmare on Elm street, like John Carpenter had with Halloween. You want everything to be perfect. And I think a lot of things that are lost in reboots of even these same films or, you know, blockbuster films is they just want the dollar is the bottom line. And when you have, you know, productions like this that are creator owned, um, and I even like that about comics, like um, the, the few indie comics that I've read and enjoyed is it's a labor of love. So even if it is terrifying and it keeps me up at night and gives me some really messed up dreams, I can definitely appreciate that aspect. Yeah. I'm going to tell you something, Chris. I love this movie. Uh, the sequels are fun, don't get me wrong, but they turn Freddy Krueger into a bit of a clown. Here, he's creepy, he's threatening, he's he's truly a nightmare. 
And I adore Robert England's portrayal. Uh, unlike other horror icons of the 70s and 80s, Freddy has this really distinct personality. Rather than hiding behind a mask as a silent killer like Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees, even the way he holds himself and the way he moves, his physical presence on screen, it's just perfect. If you kind of noticed how he holds himself with his glove, this bladed glove, he slightly slouches to the left, kind of signaling that the weight and the heft of this weapon and it kind of changes him almost like uh, almost like a little uh, like he has a hump or something when you see him in silhouette because he's kind of slouching over to the side it's just very distinctive and so many smart acting choices from Robert England here and here's another movie much like Halloween where the music does a lot of heavy lifting synthesizers or not um the main <laughs> the main theme kind of played on a piano with uh filled with these occasionally discordant notes uh gives you this, this sense that something's slightly off and i really like the creepy nursery rhyme too you know one two freddy's coming for you it works really well in the context of the story and adds another layer of this this surreal vibe and there's a lot to be said for the dark humor present in the movie now freddy is not a clown here yet but if you pay close attention there are so many things in this movie in the background that are super amusing I particularly enjoy how Nancy's mom can produce a bottle of booze from pretty much anywhere in the house. <laughs> like, there's having an argument in the hallway. Nancy goes in her room. She opens a cupboard. There's a bottle of booze. Boom, right there. It's it's just never fails to elicit a chuckle for me. I love the scene with the spinning room as well when Tina dies. And um, when you look at some of the behind-the-scenes stuff, apparently they, like, broke the room when they poured the blood through it, like, short-circuited the room, <laughs> because they literally were spinning the room as they were filming that, which is absolutely insane how they pulled that off. I will say that I agree uh, with you to a certain extent about the cast uh, being a little bit weaker, a, little, a lot of unknowns, um, and they didn't quite bring it like Jamie Lee Curtis did. I will say, though, Wes Craven came back uh, to make one more... Nightmare on Elm Street movie called Wes Craven's New Nightmare. And he brings back Heather Langenkamp. And it's a very meta movie uh, where she's actually basically playing a version of herself and Freddy's coming out into the real world through the movies, basically. And her acting is incredible in New Nightmare. Um, she apparently gained a lot of experience uh, and New Nightmare is just a Heather Langenkamp tour de force. So, uh, and, and Craven really brings it again too and makes Freddy creepy and serious again. So out of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, I would say New Nightmare is probably uh, my second favorite. Um, so if you if you got a taste for Nightmare on Elm Street, I would recommend that. It's very different, but it's really the Heather Langenkamp show. She is fantastic. But what I love ultimately about the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, period, is just how the movies play with reality, with dreams, how often you're not quite sure if what is happening is real or not. The movie kind of keeps you on your to toes, and I adore it for that. Yeah, and, and that you know is a similar concept that one of my all-time favorite films plays with, and, and that's uh, Christopher Nolan's Inception. I watched that movie five or six times in theaters. It's one of the few that I went back and watched, and you know I've watched it several times. Uh, I, I rewatch it frequently, and I still don't quite understand it all the way. Um, and I will say for this film, for Nightmare on Elm Street, that ending was pitch perfect and wonderful. Like it really messed me up because I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense the way to end that. And then the twist at the end was just deliciously terrifying. Yeah, just a great movie all around. I'm, uh, I've just been pleased that uh, you, you've really seemed to enjoy at least some aspects of these movies, despite the fact that you're not uh, a quote unquote horror movie fan. Well, I, and I will say this, I'm, I'm, I'm quite thankful for this experience because I think I was just living in the past of, you know, being subjected to, to scary movies as a, as a younger kid and never really being interested in them, you know, as a teenager or as, even as an adult. And, and that this has really helped me like open up towards enjoying more content. You know, here's a spoiler for when we get to November, one of my nerd commendations, uh, Lovecraft Country. You know, the, the, I would never have even thought about clicking on a show like that before, you know, subjecting myself to, to films like these and opening myself up to the horror genre. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that wraps up yet another episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. We thank you so much for riding along with us, listening to our nerdy ramblings and keeping it, for the most part, a toxic free environment. 
Um, if you want to interact with us, uh, with us on social media, we promise to be respectful. Uh, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at NerdByWord, individually on both platforms at that nerd Dave and at that nerd Chris. You can also find our Facebook page at the nerd by word. And of course, don't forget to uh, give us a five-star rating, a review on any uh, podcasting platform where you get us from. We are pretty much all over the place at this point, um, including YouTube. No video at this time, but that might be something that we'll add eventually. Um, don't be a stranger. Check us out. Yeah, absolutely. Whether you like Apple Podcasts, you like Spotify, you like iHeartRadio, you like Amazon uh, Music, um, even our fancy schmancy website, nerdbyword.com. Be sure to check us out. Let us know how we're doing, what you would like to see in the future. Uh, as always, thanks for sticking around and stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez and show art by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. <laughs>